traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. It was a lush region at the confluence of the Oxus and Kokja rivers, and perfect for a royal hunt. Depending on the season, you might expect to find deer, ibex, goats, and rams, even the occasional wolf or bear. Rarest of all was the snow leopard, or unz, who concealed themselves in broken terrain before attacking their prey from above. But on this hunt, the king spied something even more unusual. A Corinthian column and a dressed stone block protruding from out of the earth. When others returned to examine the site, historian Frank D. Holt describes what they found. Just inches beneath the soil, the outlines of an entire city bulged in plain sight. Ramparts, gateways, streets, courtyards, a theater, and other buildings of various sizes. Remarkably, the city had never been reoccupied, so that no later city rested on its ruins. The city was, in all likelihood, the Bactrian city of Eucratidea, last stronghold of the legendary king Eucratides. The year was 1961, and the monarch who discovered the site was King Mohammad Zahir Shah of Afghanistan. What he'd found at the site called Ai Kanum, or Lady Moon in Uzbek, was the first example of a well-preserved city from the days of the Bactrian kingdom. Much of the very little we know about this place and time comes from the 16 excavations conducted at the site between 1965 and 1978, framed by the initial discovery and the later Soviet invasion. But, as Holt details in his book, Lost World of the Golden King, the discovery was also the culmination of an effort begun over two centuries earlier. You can start with the super-sparse classical sources, like Justin, Plutarch, and Strabo, which provide the basic framework. 
a wealthy kingdom forged by followers of Alexander, who engaged in a series of civil wars before eventually vanishing from history. But in modern times, it really began with a coin. Fittingly enough, a coin of King Eucrates. In 1735, a coin of the mysterious Bactrian king was inherited by a scholar named Theophilus Siegfried Bayer, and inspired him to dig through the ancient sources and compile a Bactrian king's list. Since his was the only known Bactrian coin at the time, the hunt soon began to track down coins for the other kings on the list. It was decades before a second coin even popped up, another one of Eucrates. But by the 1820s, coins had been found for a half-dozen Bactrian kings. The explosion came a few decades later. The great game of European involvement in Central Asia brought an influx of unscrupulous adventurers some of whom looted enormous coin hoards from Buddhist stupas and other sites. The coins unearthed were, technically, both Bactrian and Indo-Greek, though the two aren't really differentiated in the ancient sources. An unexpected byproduct was that sufficient coins had soon emerged to serve as miniature Rosetta Stones. I mentioned last episode how Indo-Greek coins typically feature Greek inscriptions on the front and those in local languages on the back. By 1840, a scholar named James Princep had used dual-language coin inscriptions to decipher the Aramaic Kuroshthi script. Among other things, his success allowed scholars to translate several major rock edicts of the Maurian emperor Ashoka. It's also worth mentioning that Princep's success came at around the same time that Champollion and Rawlinson were deciphering hieroglyphics and cuneiform. By the end of the 19th century, the names of kings found on coins had outgrown the Bactrian kings list compiled from the ancient sources. Since there were now dozens of kings and their period of rule was fairly constrained, scholars began weaving a cat's cradle of family relationships, often based on not much more than the passing resemblance of two faces. And, for better or worse, they also took a stab at a historical narrative. One of the earliest, and still best known, was written by Sir William Woolthorpe Tarn. Another was written by an Indian scholar named Awad Kishore Narain. But, like the narrative I'm currently presenting, both tend to bridge some pretty large gaps with a healthy dose of speculation. And there was still one fundamental disconnect. By all accounts, Bactria was enormously wealthy, to the extent that its king supposedly ruled over a thousand cities. The problem was, by 1900, not a single Bactrian city had yet been found. In fact, no one in the area had found so much as a single Greek inscription. Scientific archaeology came to the region in the 1920s, through a Franco-Afghan collaboration. One of the first cities excavated was ancient Bactra, 
where the Bactrian king Euthydemus had withstood a two-year siege by Antiochus the Great. The initial finds were disappointing, as they were at several subsequent sites, and for a few more decades Greco-Bactria continued to elude archaeologists. All the way up until 1961, and the discovery of Iconum. So, let me start off by giving the lay of the land. And yes, I'll be posting a few maps. Bactria, as I've mentioned, lies in modern northern Afghanistan. Its capital of Bactra, from which the kingdom derived its name, was located around 50 miles south of the Oxus River near the modern city of Balk. Just east of Bactria, in modern Pakistan, was the Indian territory of Gandhara. If you were a Bactrian king like Eucrates, who was largely focused on Indian conquests, you might want a convenient staging ground that was right on India's doorstep. And, as it happens, Iconum is 200 miles east of the capital of Bactra right on India's doorstep. Not that Eucrates founded the city. It was already over a century old by the time he took the throne. But he definitely had a strong connection, and it's reasonably likely that, at the time of our story, Iconum was called Eucratidea. The city is also referred to as Alexandria on the Oxus, but that name's very likely a misnomer. As best as can be determined, the city was founded around 280 BC by the Seleucid king Antiochus I, which means it may have been called Antioch on the Oxus. As I mentioned last episode, through his mother Apama, Antiochus I was half Sogdian. So it's unsurprising he'd have an interest in founding new cities in the region. At the time it was built, Iconum lay very close to the borders of the Mauryan Empire. The empire's founder, Chandragupta Maurya, had defeated Seleucus I in battle, winning the satrapies of Gandhara, Satagidia, Gedrosia, Arachosia, and possibly even Arya. In 280 BC, his son Bindusara was consolidating his father's gains. But it was always possible he might turn his eye toward Bactria. Which is likely why, from the very start, defense was a major focus. The city walls at Iconum stretch for a mile on each side, composed of an estimated 10 million bricks. Holt notes that the site exploited every advantage provided by man and nature to secure itself against possible attack. These defenses, plus the strategic location of the city on the Bactrian frontier and the presence of a huge arsenal inside the walls, suggest that Iconum served, at least in part, a military function. Another role served by Iconum was as the primary Bactrian mint. As Holt notes, the site lies near sources of great mineral wealth, with mines yielding copper, iron, lead, silver, rubies, and lapis lazuli. 
local silver was likely used to mint coins for the Bactrian army. And Diodotus II used the mint to openly break with the Seleucid Empire by striking coins for himself as Bactrian king. Based on archaeological findings, it was also likely at Iconum, around 225 BC, that the usurper Euthydemus had launched the revolt that had ended Diodotid rule. And 40 years later, when the Maurian Empire was overthrown by the military commander Shunga, Iconum was likely the launching point for the Indian invasions of Euthydemus's son, Demetrius. So, we're talking about a city that's not a capital, but still extremely important. One patronized by Bactrian regimes from independence right down through Eucrates. Its large palace and enormous treasury implies royal residence and significant wealth. Likely derived from mineral resources, taxation, agriculture, and occasional Indian plunder. So, it sounds like a pretty great location. But how do you actually convince Greek colonists to come and settle in the region? Because, let's be honest, Iconum is very far from home. When the city was founded around 280 BC, the eastern satrapies were fairly stable, which made the actual getting there part a bit less problematic. But the real selling point was likely spelled out on the cover of the glossy brochure. Once you arrive at Iconum, you'll have all the comforts of home. According to Holt, everything that could be done to nurture the traditions of Greek life in an alien environment, the Seleucids deliberately sponsored at Iconum. This included the construction of major monuments, including the only Greek-style theater and gymnasium ever found east of Babylon, along with other elements including Rhodian porticos, Athenian propylia, Delian homes, Corinthian tiles, and Mediterranean amphorae. Holt highlights a temple unearthed near Iconum and dedicated to the Oxus River that contained the greatest collection of Greek armament found anywhere in the ancient world. Even more striking is the Harun, or Hero's Tomb, erected for the city's founder, a man named Canaeus. The tomb is inscribed with the famous maxims from the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, copied and carried to Iconum by a Greek man named Clearchus. According to the inscription, Clearchus set up these wise sayings of earlier men here at the sanctuary of Canaeus, blazing from afar. The desperate need for the familiar makes sense when you consider just how alien the region was, even for the most adventurous and open-minded Greek. As Holt notes, Though Greece was mountainous, its highest peak, Mount Olympus, would be dwarfed by those of Bactria and Sogdia. And the rivers of Greece, mostly just trickles of little consequence, could not compare with the large, life-giving torrents of Central Asia. 
In a way, it must have seemed awe-inspiring, like some primordial land of the gods. Despite the many prominent Greek aspects, Iconum was apparently no monoculture. Historian John D. Granger notes that the architecture of Iconum has been increasingly recognized to contain much influence from a Caymanid practice in its houses, temples, even the palace, and in many of the details of architectural decoration. The city's main temple, dedicated to Zeus, may have housed a smaller version of the god's famous statue from Olympia. But the temple itself has thick walls, in a Persian Zoroastrian style, rather than being open and colonnaded. Iconum's mixed population is reflected in local administrative texts, which record a variety of Greek and non-Greek names. Holt identifies local officials named Bagabadra, Ocus, Oxybazus, Oxyboakes, Tarsus, and Citranus, among others. He also notes that Per these texts, the latest datable administrative activity in the king's palace at Iconum occurred in 146 BC. Or, in other words, the year before Eucrates' death at the hands of his son, Heliocles. This, along with other evidence, suggests that the fall of Eucrates brought about, or coincided with, a time of major crisis. So, let's all try to imagine the scene in 145 BC, when Heliocles rolled into town at the head of a defeated army after discarding the corpse of his murdered father somewhere along the road. As I mentioned, Heliocles was already co-king, and apparently did nothing to hide his patricide. So, either he wielded influence of his own, or Eucrates had grown unpopular. Based on the very limited evidence, mainly the interpretation of coins, Granger notes that Heliocles may have gone on to share his rule with a brother named Eucrates II. Meanwhile, another royal relative named Plato, possibly a brother of the slain Eucrates, continued to rule a portion of neighboring Gondara. And if you're sensing some fragmentation and decline, you're definitely not alone. At least three prominent local powers were sniffing royal blood in the water, and each would take successive turns at tearing Bactria apart. Let's start with the first, and most relevant to our story, King Mithridates I of Parthia. We know absolutely nothing of Mithridates' activities between 145 and 141, except that there's no record of him coming west of the Behistun Pass. We also know that around the same time, the Parthians gained control of Arya and Margiana, the territories separating Parthia from Bactria. Combined with the time frame of Eucrates' death, it looks like Mithridates used the opportunity to attack and seize both provinces, which had been under nominal Bactrian control. It may have happened quickly, it may have taken several years, we really have no way of knowing. 
Another important factor is that during this time, the Scythians were pressing south through Sogdia toward the northern bank of the Oxus, which was actually even worse than it sounds. Because the Scythians were just the leading edge of a huge nomadic invasion, set in motion by events much farther east. I covered the details back in Bloodline episode B24, but long story short, Han Dynasty China was pushing the Xiongnu, the Xiongnu were pushing the Yueshi, and the Yueshi were pushing the Scythians. And along with the Parthians, it was the Scythians and Yueshi who'd closed the book on the Greek experience in Bactria. As I mentioned last episode, in addition to conquering Bactrian territory, Mithridates may have gone back east to keep an eye on the Scythians. Of course, the Parthians, or Parni, were Scythians themselves, having once been part of the Dahe Confederation. So Mithridates likely had good intelligence and a good understanding of the threat. Either way, by 141, Mithridates felt that the eastern situation was stable enough for him to refocus his energies. Refocus on what? Oh, not much. Just, you know, conquering Mesopotamia. In 141 BC, Parthian forces surged through the Behistun Pass and onto the Mesopotamian plain. And for some reason, or a variety of reasons, they faced virtually zero resistance. Granger reports that in a few short weeks, and with no recorded battles or skirmishes, Mithridates captured both Seleucia on the Tigris and Babylon. A short time later, he was accepted as king in the region of Babylonia. So, let's all take a breath and figure out what the hell just happened. You may recall a few episodes back, when the new Syrian king Demetrius II, and yes, trust me, we'll be getting back to all that very, very soon. Anyway, in 145, Demetrius II sent orders for a general named Ardaia to lead an army out of Babylon and fight Camnazcaris and Elemius. Well, by 141 BC, there's no mention of either Ardaia or of a Seleucid army in Babylonia. Granger suggests they may have either been severely mauled by the Elemians or possibly recalled back to Syria. Which is maybe one reason for the lack of resistance, but as I mentioned last episode, Granger suggests that another reason might be Mithridates' light-handed rule. And, in contrast to media, we actually have a few details on how Mithridates governed Babylonia. He installed an official named Antiochus, son of King Arabozana, as his viceroy at Seleucia on the Tigris, and a general named Nicanor as Strategos in Babylon. The fact that both men had Macedonian names is, at the very least, an interesting tidbit though it doesn't imply that the locals flock to his banner. As Granger summarizes, perhaps a combination of political confusion, treason, and general exhaustion would best explain the ease of the Parthian conquest. 
and in the absence of better information, I say we just go with that. Sometime during the next few months, while Mithridates was securing Babylonia, an unusual event took place at Iconum. What was it? Well, the new Bactrian king, Heliocles I, received a rather surprising embassy. Who was it from? Funny you should ask. It was from none other than the young Seleucid king, Demetrius II. Given the timing and urgency of the message, it was likely carried by a very small party, or possibly just one extremely brave and extremely skilled individual. Because we're talking about someone both willing and able to transit a hostile media, Hyrcania, including the Caspian Gates, Parthia, and most of Bactria in what was essentially wartime. So, just making contact was unusual enough. But if the embassy was strange, the message it carried was nothing short of radical. Demetrius was assembling a regional coalition to distract and defeat Mithridates. According to the historian Justin, Demetrius's would-be anti-Parthian alliance included the Seleucids, the Bactrians, the Persians, and, surprisingly, the Elemians. And, though not explicitly stated, it also likely included the Cherusenes. All of which made for a very mixed and fairly unruly bag. Both Persia and Cherusina were technically Seleucid vassals, while Bactria was, at best, an ally. Alemius might only be compelled to sign up in an enemy-of-my-enemy enemy kind of way. Details aside, the scale of the thing is what really gets my attention. Aside from the ad hoc alliances of convenience during the wars of Alexander's successors, I have trouble recalling a similarly bold proposition. My mind goes back to the 853 BC Battle of Karkar, where the kingdoms of Syria joined forces with Egypt to confront the Neo-Assyrians. Suffice to say, it was a very unusual request. Heliocles needed little inducement to hate or fear the Parthians, especially since they'd likely just torn away two of his provinces. And it's pretty easy to guess what Demetrius needed. The main superpower of the Bactrian kingdom was pulling Mithridates back to the east, while Demetrius invaded Mesopotamia with the Seleucid army. The other allies were likely to wait until the Seleucid and Parthian armies had clashed, then weigh in to help secure a Parthian defeat. It was a bold plan with a complex strategy, requiring coordination across vast distances among rulers who were strangers and even enemies. Given all that, Heliocles had a serious decision to make. Launching an attack on Mithridates just might be a suicide mission. And then, of course, there were the Scythian nomads gathering in ever greater numbers along his northern frontier. Not a great time to be a Bactrian king, 
and he may have wished his father, Eucrates, was still around to pull off some military miracle. All we know is, over the next few months, one of two things happened. Either Heliocles screwed up his courage and led an attack on the Parthian rear, or the Scythians moved into Bactrian territory in what amounted to a full-blown invasion. Whatever happened, it produced the same result. In late 141, Mithridates left his newly won Babylonian territories in the hands of his satrap Antiochus and headed back east to Media. And he was in Media in early 140 when he learned two pieces of news. The first was that King Demetrius II had crossed the Euphrates at the head of a Seleucid army. The second was that the Elemian king, Camnascaris II, had launched an invasion of Babylon. Whatever Mithridates knew or suspected, one thing seemed abundantly clear. The trigger had been pulled on the ultimate showdown for control of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. 